find your Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Christians say that Jesus Christ changes lives. That's a pretty lofty claim. But the non-believer really wants to know, is that true? This is how it sounds to the non-believer when you say things like that. Are you telling me that this Jesus who walked the earth 2,000 years ago is like changes your life? He transforms you? How in the world is that even possible? And what they're really asking, is there really any earthly evidence for such a lofty heavenly claim? You know, Jesus told his followers, listen, you are the salt of the earth. But what does the taste of God look like when the non-believer interfaces with the Christian? You see, God wants there to be a high degree of correlation between what you say you believe and how you live and how you act. And you will find, and it's always true in Scripture, that the imperatives of the Bible, how we are to live, are always rooted in the indicatives, what God says about us, about who we are in Christ. You never want to get that mixed up. You see, who we are in Christ, that we're united with Jesus, is to have a manifesting expression in our life of how we live. And so when we come to the book of 1 Thessalonians, remember uh, chapter 3, verse 13, he ends by calling them saints. You are holy ones. You are set apart to God. And beginning in chapter 4, he's going to start telling us, this is how you ought to live. You ought to walk in such a way. In fact, you see that in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, finally then, brethren... We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. You see, the believer actually has a heart and a desire to want to please God. And I'll tell you, who you are looking to please actually tells you who you're really serving. So if you're really always looking to please yourself or please another person, that tells you you're looking to serve that individual or yourself. God says, I want your orientation to be vertical. I want you to look to please God. Learn how to walk in this way. And you see, that's because a tree is always known by its fruit. And Christians are to be known by the fruit that God manifests in their life. You see, the outside world, the non-believer, they rarely come to church to hear a sermon. Like maybe on occasion, you invite them, Easter, Christmas, yeah, they might come. But they rarely come to a church to hear a sermon. But let me assure you, they see and hear sermons every day through the lives of the people who claim to know God. And so when you come to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is emphasizing, how do you really give credibility to your testimony? If you say you really know Jesus, what does that lifestyle look like? Well, when you, you don't have to guess. That's why 1 Thessalonians 4 is so powerful. Take a look. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 3, if you want to add credibility to your testimony, you want to be developing personal purity. We've actually spent three weeks on the subject 
of how to behave in a sexually moral way. And so just by way of review, look at verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God. You want God's will for your life? Here it is. Your sanctification, that is your set apart to God, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia, pretty broad. Any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, any sort of sexual activity, including unbridled lust, porneia. He says, abstain from it. Verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel or your own body, and you do so in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because listen to this, the Lord, he is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So... He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You want to have credibility to your testimony? Friends, these verses have to have reality in our life, especially in this day. You have to be pursuing personal purity. Let me give you a second, though. If you really want to have credibility to your testimony that you're a follower of Jesus, you want to be developing a practical love. Look at verse 9. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Now, backing up to verse 9 here, he says, As to the love of the brethren, that's just one word in Greek. Philadelphia, like Philadelphia. It has the idea of brotherly love, a sense of affection and of commitment. And it's very interesting. In the early church, they referred to fellow believers as a brother or a sister. That is because they had a profound understanding of what it means to be adopted into God's family by virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ. And so they referred to each other as brothers and sisters. And they actually learned to behave that way where they engaged each other's life with an affection and a commitment. And you notice in verse 9, it says, you've been taught by God to love like this. You're certainly taught in the word, but you're really taught by the triune God himself. Like, for instance, the father. God the father actually gives his son. Why? Because God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we are yet sinners... Christ died for us. God literally gives his son as a demonstration of love. We learn love from this. We learn love from the son. Jesus spoke on multiple occasions that we are to love one another. And by when you look at Jesus' example, his encouragement, and the empowerment that he gives, all of this is to show us what does love incarnated look like. And probably the greatest demonstration of love, if you want to be taught by God how to love, focus on Jesus, specifically Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of his people. There is something deeply profound that Christ sacrifices himself and literally bears our sins in his body so that you and I who believe will be forgiven and that we will learn to love. To love like this. It's one of the reasons why 
Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, communion. In fact, we're going to share on this today. So that we will really understand and see what love really looks like. You're taught by God. You're also taught by the Holy Spirit on how to love. Remember Romans 5, 5? Literally, the Spirit of God pours out into our hearts this love. He gives us the empowerment. You can't manufacture it. He gives us the ability to love because you're taught by God to love. In fact, he says, in fact, it's happening, verse 10. It's spreading throughout the, uh, the entire Macedonia province, like Philippi and Berea, and perhaps other little villages and towns. But how does God increase our love how does he do it well i'll tell you he puts us into circumstances that force us to grow in our love now i know when we speak about the whole subject of loving people and loving believers you might like yeah i got some christians that i know i have trouble even liking not to mention loving right it's like one person rather succinctly Put it, to dwell above with the saints I love, man, to me, that will be glory. But to dwell with the saints that I know, well, that's another story, all right? All right, it's one thing like, man, when I'm in heaven, I'm going to be loving everybody, and it's going to be awesome. But, you know, down here on earth, man, there's some people that are just difficult to be around. And what happens when your feelings get hurt, or you don't quite seem to have the same chemistry, or or they're different from you, and, and what do we tend to do? What we tend to do is isolate and run, don't we? Oh, you hurt my feelings. Oh, that's it, man. I'm, I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. I'm going to do the passive-aggressive thing on you. I'm going to turn from you. I'm going to isolate myself from you. Friends, God is calling us to trust Jesus. Let me give you uh, some quotes from some early Christian sources. There's an anonymous 4th century Christian leader that wrote this. If a trial with other people comes upon you in the place where you live, do not leave that place when the trial comes. Wherever you go, you will find that what you are running from is ahead of you. So stay stay until the trial is over, so that if you end up leaving, no offense will be caused and you will not bring distress to others who live in the same neighborhood. Or the 12th century Anselm of Canterbury He compared the restless believer who is always moving and like, this isn't quite right, and I want to do this, flipping around here and there all over. Uh, He compared them to like a tree that was frequently transplanted and never could really grow. And this is what he warns. If he often moves from place to place at his own whim or remaining in one place is frequently agitated by hatred of it. You're in a place, but you always hate it. That's what he says. This person never achieves stability with roots of love. That's what God intends, that we sink deep roots, roots in him, roots of love that are going to be manifested in our life. Remember when God says it is not good for man to be alone? Oftentimes we focus like, yep, there's the beauty of companionship. But let me give you the flip side on that. You see, being together with others addresses the abyss of selfishness in our life because we are so self-centered we are so selfish so me oriented and so god brings others so that we learn to focus on jesus because we're dependent upon him so we can actually learn to love others you see the kind of god we really believe in is really revealed by how we treat other people 
Now, you might be wondering, like, hey, how could I get possibly any more sweeter? I mean, listen, I'd, I'd stay out of the rain because I don't melt. I, it's Valentine's Day. I am the picture of love. I mean, I just don't know what more I could do, right? And I'm looking out there and like very lovely people. Some of you really dressed to the hilt today. Great. But just as a ray of reminder, let me give you a few ways you can express love. Love compels concern that you actually demonstrate a warmth and a care for someone. Love learns to share freely to meet spiritual needs, emotional needs, even material needs. That, that's love moving you to act. Love is showing respect. Love is, is expressing yourself in such a way that, you know, I care for you. I, I respect you. I'm going to look you in the eye. I'm going to shake your hand. I'm going to listen when you're speaking. Let me give you another expression of love. Love is expressed through self-sacrifice and servanthood, where you'll actually literally put another's needs before your own. Here's another one. Love is expressed by forgiving others, bearing the hatchet, following Jesus' example, and truly forgiving from the heart. I will tell you that learning to love is critical to your development. And if you are running around with hatred in your heart, I want you to know it is stunting your spiritual growth. How can you say that you love God and hate your fellow man or the, your brother or your sister? See, God intends for us to pursue growing in love. And I'll tell you, when you do this, you're going to find that you're going to become a much deeper person. If you kind of like feel like, you know, I'm kind of a superficial person. I'm always just kind of floating around, keeping people at a distance. And I don't have a lot of depth. And I kind of know that. You want depth in your life? Learn how to love. And God will teach you. In fact, he's teaching you even today. And furthermore, not only you find a deeper life, but you're going to have a far more significant ministry when you really learn to love people and appreciate them. Not trying to manipulate and change them all the time. And if you're feeling unloved, okay, ever felt like that? What is the tendency? If we feel unloved, we're trying to like hide from others, right? We're going to, we're going to mope and we're going to go into like a little pity party. I want you to take these verses and ask the, God, ask the Spirit of God to apply them to your life. You want to be careful about making feeling-based decisions. They often lead you in the wrong direction. If you're feeling unloved, why not try doing this? Reaching out to another person. You want a friend? If you really want a friend, you've got to be a friend. And so you do. You reach out. Maybe you would say some loving words to someone. You call someone. Send them an email. Send them a text. Do something nice for someone with no strings attached. Just say, God, I want you to pour out your love through me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to this individual. Maybe, and they're quirky, and they get, they're kind of like a cactus, you know? They're just kind of hard to get around. You love. Remember what Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's all we need to know. Or would you give me maturity to grow in this area? And would you do it? You want to add credibility to your testimony? You and I, we're going to have to learn how to have a practical love. Let me give you another one right here from the text. That is, a watching world wants to know if we have a peaceful life. Is God developing peace in you? Look at what he says here in the text, verse 11. And he says, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. So this quiet life, it refers to 
someone who does not create social problems or social unrest. But it also refers to an individual who doesn't generate conflict in their relationships. But there's a sense of tranquility, shalom, peace in their life that gets translated in their relationships. Really interesting. He says, make it your ambition. This is like a really active word compared to a low energy word, quiet or peaceful. You see, if you're going to lead a tranquil, restful, peaceful life, it's going to take effort. You're going to have to apply yourself. It doesn't just happen. You see, you've got to learn how to build margin into your life. There is rest balanced with work. And he says, one of the clear realities of knowing Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is that there is some peace that is coming from your life. There is a peace with God, peace with people, and I'll tell you, it needs to be cultivated. It requires intentionality. If you are waiting for circumstances to be peaceful and then I'll be a peaceful person, I got news for you. You're going to be waiting a long time. Even if you think, well, when I finally retire, right, then it's all going to settle down and I'm going to be at peace and I'll live a peaceful life. And it doesn't happen that way, does it? No, God wants us to experience his peace now. This is not peace when I got peaceful circumstances. This is learning how to rest and be at peace with God. Let me give you some really helpful verses. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. They tell us how we can experience God's peace in the midst of all the difficulties and the trials and the hurriedness of life. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God says, I can give you my peace. It doesn't even make sense to the world. It's not based on circumstances. It comes by you praying and thanking God. Oftentimes when we're in a trial or a difficulty, we forget about what God's doing or what he has done for us. We stop thanking and we're just fixated on the problem. God says, I want you to be mindful of my faithfulness to you. Be thankful. Thank me in the midst of it. You bring your request to me. And God says, I'm going to give you my peace. And we see it. We see people going through difficulty, hardship, relationship breakdown, cancer, medical problems, all sorts of challenges, difficult surroundings, hard times in teaching school, problems at home. And yet you can have peace, peace from God that comes from trusting God. And thanking God. Let me uh, give you some helpful practices on cultivating a peaceful life. I mean, wouldn't you like that? I mean, just stop. Wouldn't you like a peaceful life? How cool would that be, huh? Let me tell you, a watching world wants to know, does Jesus really change your heart? Let me give you some helpful practices. One, just daily being still before God and just having some time to just enjoy God in your Bible. Just Develop a pattern where you just, you're still. Try it. Just even for two minutes, just being still before God. And maybe follow it up with a, a time of prayer or just enjoying some time in the Word. Let me give you another. Taking a few deep breaths and praying and counting to ten before you respond or act. Now, you know, sometimes things happen and we just kind of have this innate reflexive response. But I have found that life goes so much better if I will pray and count to 10 before I respond. Much better responses. I, I can tell you it'll probably help you as well. 
Here, let me give you another. Rate your daily problems and the trials that you're, you're facing on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being like, you know, I probably won't remember this in a day or two. And 10 being, I got a nuclear war in my hometown. Okay? Major. By assigning a value, I found that like I was treating things like 8, 9s, and 10s, when in actuality they were 1, 2s, and 3s. And by assigning a value, I could respond appropriately. And it'll be so beneficial to lead to a peaceful life. Let me give you another. Find a good discipler or a friend that can help you with God's perspective and help you to grow in maturity in Christ. There's just something about being with another friend that helps you get a sense of balance, perspective. And then finally, try to find time in the midst of your busy week to experience a Sabbath rest. Now, a day would be great, but like for some of us, a half day or even a few hours would be so good. We're you are finding time to connect with God. The things that you most connect with God with, whether it's singing music, listening to music, reading the Bible, listening to a message, being outdoors, walking, praying, whatever it is, do it. Find life-giving activities and restore your soul. Because after all, God wants you to walk in his peace. And it's not only a huge benefit to your life. Frankly, a watching world wants to know, does Jesus really change your life all that much? God gives you his peace. So if you want to... If you really want to add credibility to your testimony, you want to be seeking the Lord to develop a peaceful life. And finally, if you really want to add credibility to your testimony, you want to have a productive work ethic. You want to be developing in this manner. Look at, look at verse 11. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, a peaceful life, and attend to your own business. Don't be a busybody putting your nose in everybody else's business. And look at this, and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You see, it's really interesting. Before Paul addresses work, he addresses peace. That is because a productive life rests on the platform of a peaceful one. When you got peace, peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with others, you can actually really be productive and give yourself to your work. And it's interesting, the Greeks and the Romans pretty much despised manual labor. They had slaves to do that. What Paul does, he flips that all upside down. And he extols the value of manual labor, of working with your hands. But it's not to say that, well, you just got to find a job that you're working with your hands. What he's really after is that you're responsible for your daily living. So whether you're working with your hands or your head, or hopefully both, right? That you are responsible that you are moving forward. In fact, he says, we commanded you. These, this is a military term. It's an order from headquarters. God, working through the apostle, through the working of the spirit, had told them multiple times, we command you, work hard. So why? Look at verse 12. Don't miss it. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So the outside world watching you sees, what does it look like when Jesus shows up to work? Well, it looks like what he looks like coming through your life. He says, behave properly, respectfully. Now, this isn't to say that if you're truly in need, that you can't receive the generosity of others. In fact, as the body of believers, we, we want to do that. What he's addressing, though, is that you've got the intent, I would like to use the gifts and the resources that God has given me, my experiences, and I want to apply them. You know, far too often, 
uh, work has gotten a bad rap. Maybe work had gotten a bad rap among the Thessalonians. We don't know exactly why they were so idle. It may be, it may be because they were like, Jesus is coming back. And so if he's coming back really soon, why would I work, man? I'll just kind of hang out. He's going to show up like any time now. And what was happening, if that was the case, and you can make a really good case for it, because beginning in verse 13 all the way through 511 in this book, the passages that come up next, it's all about the second coming of Jesus. But what was happening, though, is that these people who were, maybe they were waiting for Jesus, or maybe it was like, I don't even want to work. They had become a drain. But furthermore, they became a drain on the testimony of Jesus at work in a person's life. You see, work oftentimes get a really bad rap. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians say this. You know, work, it's just like a necessary evil. What I do, it's all going to burn, right? It doesn't matter. I, I mean, occasionally I might be able to share my faith or, you know, I can give 10% of my income. I can tithe. But apart from that, my work doesn't matter. Friends, that is not a biblical perspective on work. Work is good. In fact, it is designed by God to manifest his character. You're designed for work. God intends to show who he is and what it looks like to follow his son by how you go about your job. And so you don't want to be a parasite. You don't want to just like, well, I'll let others take care of me. If you can engage, you must do so. In fact, texts like this, and there are multiple ones in the New Testament, are what created what is called the Protestant work ethic. And the Protestant work ethic was basically had these tenets, that you had hard work, discipline, and frugality based upon your salvation, based upon a relationship with Jesus. You would work hard, you would live a disciplined life, and you would be frugal, meaning you'd live below your means or even well below your means. As people got into the word, as the Protestant Reformation took place, and people now were actually reading the Bible for themselves, they saw clearly that God intended to manifest his character through his people, especially with how they worked. And it actually was one of the driving forces that led to capitalism. It was an uncoordinated effort, but people were following the scriptures, and they were actually doing what they said. And so this problem in Thessalonica is that you got some folks that weren't working. And if you think like, well... Paul, all he had to do was address it, and it was taken care of. Well, that obviously didn't happen. It'd be like if we just addressed it, and you're like, oh, really? I should be working. Great. Got it. Well, they didn't. You know, after 1 Thessalonians, Paul had to write another letter. It's creatively labeled 2 Thessalonians. And at the end of it, he wrote this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 and following. He says, Remember this, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Did you get that? If you are not willing to work, then try hunger on. That might change your opinion on the matter. But this is obviously very serious because it's serious to the testimony of Jesus. And he says, For we hear that there's some among you who are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You just run around meddling in everybody's stuff. No. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty loaded, right? To work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. You are to work. You are to fulfill the requirements of your employment, and you are to fulfill your responsibilities at home, but you've got to engage. It's part of your testimony to a watching world. 
Let me give you a couple Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4 on the subject. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn. So he begs during the harvest and he has nothing. Why is he begging during harvest? Because he never got around to actually planting seeds. He just took a huge hiatus. Or Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death for his hands refuse to work. Now, Paul isn't promoting some sort of fierce independence, like we don't need anybody. That's not it. And he's not saying that Christians would, necess- would always become completely self-sufficient. Because that may not always be the case. And we might need to help some people. Or you might need to be helping in your family. But what he is advocating is personal responsibility. How critically important it is to your walk with God and to your testimony to a watching world. You see, we've got to learn how to work hard trusting in God's strength, and we also have to learn how to be responsible with our spending and live well below our means. In 1850, Abraham Lincoln's stepbrother, John D. Johnson, wrote to him and again asked that he would get a loan to cover some of his debts. Now, on previous occasions, this had happened on multiple times, that Lincoln actually just forwarded the funds that his stepbrother, John, would need and at different times even covered the debts that he had. But on this occasion in 1850, Lincoln wrote a letter, and he responded with what we would call tough love, and a letter that included a very helpful proposal. And I'd like to read you an excerpt from it. So Lincoln wrote this, Dear Johnson, your request for $80, I do not think it best to comply with now. At the various times when I have helped you a little, you have said to me, well, we can get along very well now. But in a very short time, I find you in the same difficulty again. Now, this can only happen by some defect in your conduct. What that defect is, I think I know. You are not lazy, and still you are an idler. I doubt whether, since I saw you, you have done a good whole day's work in any one day. This habit of uselessly wasting time is the whole difficulty. It is vastly important to you, and listen to this, And still more so to your children. Why? Because children learn from their parents that you should break the habit. You are now in need of some money. And what I propose is that you will go to work tooth and nail for somebody who will give you money for it. And to secure you a fair reward for your labor. I now promise you that for every dollar you will between this and the first of May get for your own labor... I will then give you one other dollar. Now, if you will do this, you will be soon out of debt. And what is better, you will have a habit that will keep you from getting in debt again. But if I should now clear you out of debt next year, you would be just as deep in as ever. Affectionately, your brother, Abraham Lincoln. Friends, God intends for these verses to be manifested in our life so that we will behave properly toward outsiders. Verse 12. You see, God wills that work is the way of building bridges for the gospel. That how we live reflects what we really believe. You see, there is to be a very close connection between the way we do our work and what we believe. And unbelievers, I I just need to know this, they don't separate our faith from our work. They don't like, oh, you got your faith, but your work is different. No, they don't separate it. And I got news. Neither should you. 
we shouldn't be separating our faith from our work. See, if you are like a person who's habitually late, you got a bad attitude at work, you were unproductive, uh, you're the, the office gossip, you're always squirming out of things, you got 10 reasons why you didn't do what you were asked to do, or you do it with the wrong heart or the wrong attitude, friends, that actually has bearing not only on you, but on the testimony of Jesus. Brian Wilkerson reported, recently I was talking to a small business owner about this very topic of faith and work, and he quickly and emphatically declared that he doesn't like to hire Christians. When I asked him why, he said they have a terrible work ethic. They're not productive, they expect all kinds of breaks, and they just don't seem to care that much about their work. He doesn't understand why, but that's been his experience time and time again. He said the other business owners and managers he talks to feel the same way. He happens to be a Christian himself, so he's not only confused and disappointed by this, he's embarrassed. These unproductive employees discredit the gospel and undermine his efforts to share his faith with colleagues. So let me just ask, what would your employer or what would your employees say about you? You see, what we want to do is work in such a way that God is glorified. And we work in such a way that the excellence of Jesus is manifested so people want to know what makes you tick. Peter addressed this. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15? He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You set yourself apart as Jesus. You're the Lord of my life, Lord of my hearts. And he said this, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that lies within. Why do you work the way you do? That means that we got to be prepared. So when someone asks you, hey, why do you work so hard and so well when no one's watching, like even when the boss is gone? So you can tell them, you know, because I believe my work matters to God. And I, I want to do that to the best of my ability. When someone asks you, like, why are you so patient with your, this particular customer or these clients or your coworkers? You tell them because God's been patient with me and every person matters to God. And this is worth my best attention. When someone says, hey, why do you have such a positive outlook? You know, some work environments, they're just like this deep abyss, right? I mean, it's just like one person complaining after another thing. And it's like sometimes you can't even wait to get out of the office, right? Or out of the shop. But if you show up with the love of Jesus and a, and a positive attitude, you could tell them, listen, Christ has filled my life with hope and joy. I got peace. You can give an account. Now, you don't have to be in people's faces, and you don't have to tell them more than they, they are asking to hear. You don't have to attack their faith or their lack of faith, but what we want to do is live in such a way that Jesus is magnified in our work. Now, there's a guy by the name of Randy Kilgore. He is the vice president of Marketplace Network. A while back, he wrote a blog uh, from his years of experience, and he wrote this, what are the five things non-believers want from coworkers who claim to be Christians? By the way, this applies if you're a student as well. Listen to this. This is what they're after. Non-believers wish Christian co-workers knew more about their faith, what they believe, and why. Isn't that interesting? They, when they ask questions, they're looking for thoughtful and substantive answers, not these, like these little glib cliches. Here's the second. Uh, unbelievers wish Christian co-workers had more hope 
and hard times. See, when bad things happen, like terrorist attacks or tsunamis or an illness or some sort of major problem, they wish that Christians actually had hope or manifested that hope or could talk about why they've got a positive perspective, God's perspective on these matters. Let me give you a third. Unbelievers wish Christian co-workers were more curious about the hard questions of life so that when asked those questions, they would already have answers. You know, right now it's like you don't talk about religion and politics, right? Let me tell you what that's created. It's created like a thirst for real truth. And actually, my experience is that unbelievers are far more interested in actually talking about spiritual matters when you can engage engage intelligently, when you can actually be real, when you're not so defensive, right? They'd like to they'd like to talk about these things. You give them an opportunity. Here you go fourth. Unbelievers wish Christian co-workers behave more honorably. That is, they expect that if you identify as a follower of Jesus, that your life is distinct. And they're actually very disappointed when they see no difference at all. And let me give you a fifth. Unbelievers wish Christian co-workers were more compassionate. It seems that many Christians come across as harsh, judgmental, insensitive, and intolerant. See, people aren't so bothered by the fact that you're passionate about your faith, but they just wish that you and I just weren't so hard and judgmental about, on people who don't share our faith. Randy Kilgore said this, There's good news and there's bad news here. The good news is this. Christians are still the go-to people when times are tough and there's trouble. People go to Christians looking for answers. That's the good news. The bad news, though, the bad news is this. When they do look to us for hope, they're often disappointed by the quality of our faith and our inability to answer their questions. Isn't that interesting? These unbelievers, they didn't say, I wish Christians would just keep their faith to themselves. They're not saying that. They didn't say, I wish Christians would loosen up and, and party more and just kind of you know, cut loose, drop some of their ethics and morals. They ne- didn't say, I wish they would bend the rules so they could kind of close the deal. They didn't say that. You know, all they really want from us is that we would be true to our faith, honest about our struggles, serious about our work, and respectful of those who see things differently than we do, that we literally believe the gospel. That's what they're after. And wouldn't, wouldn't this be something? Let me just cast a little vision. If we went to work each day with the idea that we're going to earn the respect of our coworkers and our employers and our employees, we're doing it for the glory of God. We're doing it to, do, to engage people with the gospel. Not that we're perfect, but that we got a Savior. And we're just one sinner who has found grace, forgiveness, hope, and life in Jesus. And we do our work with excellence unto him. You see, the gospel gains credibility when people see Christ transforming our work, when we're making progress in the faith. And when it comes to our testimony, it's like this. Seeing leads to believing. When people see the change, they see the difference. Friends, that tastes like salt. And it leads to believing. And when we keep Christ at the center of our lives, you know what happens, don't you? We give people a sermon they can see.